Well, we continue our study in the book of Acts this morning, uh, obviously looking at the conversion of Paul, which is a major turning point in human history. We could just as easily be reading a book on the history of the Western world um, when we're reading uh, the story of the conversion of Paul. Um, the story is so important, evidently, to Luke in what he's trying to do as he writes Acts, and so important to the Holy Spirit who is inspiring Luke, that the story's told three times in the book of Acts. It's told here, and then Paul recounts it in chapter 22 and in 26. So we'll come back to this again. So as we think about the conversion of Paul, I want to just kind of help you remember this morning as we get into this, uh, what a passionate and devout Jew Paul was. How utterly committed he was to the glory of God, so much so that he was willing to hurt others in that cause, to imprison them, and even to participate in killing them if in his own mind he thought it protected God's honor. But what he finds out that he was fundamentally actually 180 degrees wrong. And so it's odd, at least to me, that God would pick a hardline, fanatical, ultra-nationalist, super-Orthodox, Pharisaic Jew to reach Gentiles, to reach those who were outside of the Jewish faith and in what the Jews would have considered this pagan Gentile world. But the psalmist, as we just read together, gives, gives us a glimpse into God's heart when the psalmist says, may your ways be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. When you see the word all nations in the New Testament, it's, uh, the Greek is ta ethne, and you can hear the word ethnic, where we, uh, we, you hear that in ethne. And ethne basically meant the others. So if the whole world were a pie, it's as if God had taken, let's say it's a berry pie. God had taken one, one blueberry and said, Abraham, I'm calling you. And I'm going to make you into a slice of this pie. I'm going to make you into this, this nation. But you exist, Abraham, little blueberry, and you exist, little slice of this pie, for the rest of the pie, for the remainder. That's the others, the ethne. It's everybody who existed outside of the Jewish world. So we see how this unpacks with Paul in that first, he has this encounter with the, with the risen Jesus. And clearly it revolutionizes everything about his thinking, his beliefs, his judgments, everything about his religious life. I mean, it was in the truest sense of conversion. If conversion means anything, Paul was converted. I mean, it, I could spend more than the 15 or 20 minutes we have here talking about the, the depth and breadth and width of this conversion that Paul went through. I mean, for some of you, it would be bad enough to just quit drinking Pepsi and have to drink Coke right, or the reverse. What a conversion that would be for some of you. I know, I've gone out to eat with you. And you've said, do you have Pepsi products? And they say, no, and I see your head hang. <laughs> well, I guess I'll have an iced tea then, right? I mean, some of us can't even convert our soda pop, you know, or what if you hate Ford and you're a Toyota person and your company car is a Ford and you walk out to the parking lot and go, oh, no, you I mean, th this was conversion on a really deep level. You have to think about it something like this. There's a very technical phrase in our reading this morning called the Son of God. 
And you've read it and heard it many times. But for Paul, those little three words, son of God, were packed with the whole meaning of everything that God had intended to do through the Jewish nation. He knew what the calling of Abraham meant. He knew the patriarchs. He knew how Israel blew it and how, and how they were exiled. And it looked like God's thing was not going to happen. It wasn't going to come to pass. He knew that the prophets had called them back to obedience. And he knew that it was not happening. And he was a part of this really strict Pharisaic group of Jews who were trying to just, they were just thinking if we could just live right enough, then maybe these promises of the Son of God would happen. And so Paul, when he's stomping out this new sect called Christianity, he thinks he's trying to create the playing field in which the Son of Man could actually appear. Because he knows in his own head that if I let this rebellion happen, what's to say that God's not going to raise up another Babylonian place for us to go to? We have to stomp this out. We have to show God that we're being pure and that we're not compromising. That's what's going on in his head. And whether walking on the road or riding a horse, the text doesn't say, he gets slammed to the ground and he sees this. Paul the God you've been studying your whole life, sitting at the feet of the best rabbis in all of history. Paul, the God that you've been praying to your whole life. Paul, the God that you've been dreaming would come. It is Jesus. Who are you, master? It's Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? I mean, talk about conversion. Do you have a kid on drugs? You got a relative who for some reason just can't get their mind wrapped around church or God? Maybe a parent on a deathbed? You're just not quite sure where they are? I mean, if this passage doesn't speak anything else to us normal folk, it speaks hope. I mean, Paul was 180 degrees out. He was as far from what God was actually doing as anybody could possibly be, and God found him. And this says to us that no matter where we might have a relative or a friend, at least it says to us. I mean, it says, you know, there's nine ways we could go with this, but at least it says to us at a minimum that God is able to find people who are about as far away as you can get and find them. So one of the things for me anyway that makes this story of of the conversion of Saul into Paul, one of the most relevant possible stories for our society is this, is we live in what is at least statistically, and you know the old saying, you know, there are lies and there are damn lies, and then there's statistics. So um, I, I get that. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I'm sort of an amateur sociologist, and I, I know especially how statistics can be messed up when it comes to things as imprecise as, as human uh, sociology. Nevertheless, uh, this seems pretty clear that 98% of the people polled every six or 12 months, 98% of people in America say they believe in God. Very much like Paul, believed in God. 80% of these, when they're polled, and this again stays very statistic, 80, uh, stays very um, consistent, very, uh, 80% of these people say they believe in heaven. This is the one that always gets me, because when I drive on the 405, I know this cannot be true, that half the people in America say they're born again. Well, maybe everything but their middle finger is born again. 
But when I drive on the 405, I become quite clear that half those people cannot be born again. Are, are we connecting here? And so there's something going on where there's kind of a religiousness, there's a, there's a residue of, of kind of a Christendom in America, but, but many, many people are living with maybe not 180 degrees out from Paul, but they're like Paul was, but they're living with some misinformation about what it might be to actually give one's life to Christ. Well, Paul, of course, does this. And when he does it, this is amazing, it's scary, it's exciting. The early church, you gotta imagine, is just all abuzz. Twitter's lit up, you know, Facebook's going crazy. You know, everybody knows that this guy, Paul, has come to faith. Because it would be no different than one of you right now getting a Twitter message and, and seeing that Bill Maher had come to faith. You'd all go, what? Come on, you'd be, no way, that's amazing, come on, no way. Or, or Dawkins or Hitchens or, you know, some such person had come to faith. That's what they were feeling, only maybe times about 10. But of course, this is then blasphemous to the Jews. Paul can't win. <laughs> because to the Jews who hold Paul's old views, they then chase him out of town. And Barnabas has to sort of rescue him and you know, come to his side and let the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem know that, hey, Paul's okay. You know, he's actually been laying his life on the line with his bold preaching in Jesus' name. And so when I think of Paul and his conversion, one of the things that, that came to my mind again this week, uh, for myself, maybe for you, that you've really not found a good reason for living until you found a reason to die. I mean, Paul was literally putting his life on the line. He couldn't win. I mean, the church hated him, didn't trust him. He gets converted. The people who remain in his old views don't like him and trust him, and now people are trying to kill him. It's like being in the mob. The killer is now trying to be killed by these two families, these two warring families. And so our text this morning said, greater love has no man than this in our gospel reading, than to lay down his life for one's friend. Our gospel reading this morning told us, Paul, I didn't choose, or we could say, Paul, I didn't, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you so that you might bear fruit. But Paul, the way this is gonna work is I have to first show you what you're in for as the text says, for the hard suffering that goes with this job. Well, the second thing that emerges from our readings this morning for me is that you have these key, three key players in the Acts text. You have Paul, Barnabas, and Ananias. And I think each one of them teaches us a little bit about how obedience to a vision of Christ works. If you were to ask, for instance, Cramner, you know, the great English reformer, or if you were to ask, you know, if we could interview Zwingli or Calvin or Luther, these guys, if you, if you think of the early sort of great Reformation minds, if you were to ask them how obedience works, they would have wanted to say something like this. It begins in grace. And they would have wanted to say this is very important, that this emerges in God's initiation, nothing we can earn. That grace then produces in us gratitude. That gratitude produces in us love. And as we begin to love this God who's revealing himself to us, it then produces in us repentance or obedience. This then leads to good works, and good works leads to a better society. Now that little paradigm is really important 
Because if nothing else, it does this to us. It tells us that shame and guilt and duty don't work and that they cannot work. You probably know the little definition of shame. You know, shame says there's something wrong with me. Um, You know, guilt says there's something wrong with what I did. Well, you know, I, uh, I mean, I'm no expert in shame. I know enough to be dangerous. Uh, I, I think I know enough to say this, that I get why most people, uh, therapists, clergy people, are down on shame, because for most people, shame doesn't really work. But, but sometimes you do have to admit, there is something wrong with me. Not just something wrong with what I'm doing, but there is something wrong with me. But that shame has to always be redemptive. It cannot become something that just ends up destroying us. So, but shame, guilt, duty, these things don't work, but grace, gratitude, love, repentance, those things leading to obedience works really well. I don't see Dennis Ockham here this morning, but some of you know Professor Dennis uh, here uh, at church, and he wrote a book called Monk Habits for Everyday People, which I commend to all of you. I think I'm gonna make mandatory reading for everybody who works around me. Um, I think it's out there on the table, as a matter of fact. I, I read it when I was on vacation last week, and um, what Dennis does is shows how these, the life of these Benedictine monks can actually inform our sort of ongoing everyday life. And in there, it made me think that obedience for most of us is a very horrible thought. Like if I say obedience, probably most of you aren't thinking, you know, warm, fuzzy thoughts. It's fraught with either confusion about, oh no, what if this gets into works? Or it gets fraught with guilt and shame and duty and, you know, what if I can't really do this? But I want you to just consider a couple of thoughts about obedience this morning as we see it lived out by Paul and Barnabas and Ananias. The first thing is that obedience doesn't destroy our liberty, it creates it. Obedience doesn't destroy our liberty, it creates it. In his book, Dennis tells the story of a monk who walks into the monastery for the first time and as he hears the big metal gate shut behind him, shutting behind him, The thought goes through his mind, I have just entered the four walls of my freedom. Our own whims, if you think, no, I don't want obedience, I don't think that actually leads to liberty or freedom, if you think about it, our own whims aren't so great. Ever followed a whim only to find out it was bankrupt? Only ever to follow a whim only to find out that it actually entrapped you? They're actually just illusions of freedom. But on the other hand, obedience to Jesus and his truth sets us free. This is what he meant in John 8. And I think this text is actually routinely misread. And so I want to see if we can try it again here this morning. Jesus said, this is John 8 in the, in the message. Jesus said to the people who had faith in him, and the text is actually, these were Jewish people who were starting to have some faith in Jesus. And he turns to them and says, if you keep on obeying what I've said, I just you need to get that. If you keep on obeying what I've said, you're truly my disciples. And as you keep on obeying what I've said, you'll know the truth. That it's in obedience that you will actually discover the truth of humanity, the truth of God, the truth of how things work. It's in obeying that you'll discover truth, and that truth will set you free. Now you've all heard the the you know the sentence, well, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But that's a very specific kind of truth. It's the kind of truth that one develops while in the practice of following and obeying Jesus. If you keep on obeying what I'm telling you, 
You, you then will discover the truth and that truth will set you free. Now this, of course, requires very high levels of trust to say that, yes, I will obey. It requires very high levels of listening. I mean, our text told us this morning that Paul was blind for three days, didn't eat, didn't drink. He did nothing apparently but listen. And before he ever went out on his first missionary journeys, he spent 13 years converting. Are you with me? So conversion happened on the road, and then he spends 13 years listening and reorienting himself before he's out doing what he's so famous for doing. And I think this teaches us that grace works best with and through our obedience. Everybody get this. The reformed doctrine of grace was never meant to paralyze you. The reformed doctrine of grace was never intended to make you do nothing. That was not its intent. Its intent was to teach us we can't earn anything. But actually, trust and faith and those things grow as we actually give ourselves to obedience, and God's grace works best there. This is why some people notice that when they hear a calling from God and they begin to pursue it, they find that that calling evokes gifts that they never knew they had. It's sort of like sitting on the sideline. You, you may never discover gifts that you have, but once you listen and you hear and you begin to obey, then God stirs up gifts within us. Well, here's the last bit of... Um, insight for me as I thought about what does this text teach us about how God the Holy Spirit is creating the Jesus life in us personally and us as a new congregation here. Well, as I said, there's three names in this text, Paul, Barnabas, and Ananias. So you've got kind of a big name, Paul. Everybody knows Paul. You've got this kind of medium name, Barnabas. A lot of people know Barnabas. And, you know, Barnabas, it's his faithful obedience that brings Paul into the community. Then you've got this little-known name, Ananias. Apart from this text, we know nothing about Ananias. But through this text, we know about everything we need to know about him. He was a believer, he listened, and he obeyed with love and grace and wisdom. And without his obedience, humanly speaking, there is no Paul. Now, nobody's ever heard of him. You'd have to get out a Bible dictionary to understand anything about him. But without his simple obedience, there is no Paul. And it just got me to thinking this week, you know, what if I put my name in that list? Well, I'm even less than Ananias. Ananias. I mean, I'm not even going to be a footnote in church history. I mean, around here, you know, everybody knows Todd, right? Todd Pickett, you know? <laughs> I'm affectionately known as Todd the Lesser. So yeah, I mean, everybody around here knows Todd. But outside of here, likely I will never be remembered. But I'm also quite clear that there have been little acts of obedience over my 35 or 36 years of walking with Jesus that have made a difference in other people's lives. Without my little bit of obedience, that thing would never have happened. And so the Jesus life is created in us, and we're called into mission the way these guys were, and into obedience. 
by the Holy Spirit speaking to us and giving us vision. I mean, I can honestly look you in the eye and say that Holy Trinity Church, for, for whatever it is and for whatever it will be in the decades and generations to come, it exists because of a vision that I had. I mean, a literal vision of this kind of church in Costa Mesa doing what we're doing, growing into what we're supposed to be. And I don't take any credit for that. It was literally a vision. It was external to me. Are you hearing me? I didn't drum it up. It came from outside of me. And it begins then to convert me and draw me into obedience. And in that conversion and being drawn into obedience, lots of new gifts have been invoked in me in the last two years. Lots of new ways of seeing and doing and being. But that's rooted in seeing a vision, trusting to place your life in it. We call that obedience. And that obedience creates the Jesus life in us as the Holy Spirit stirs all that up. Amen.